Welcome to My Safety Tech Podcast with me, your host, Pete Thomas. In this episode, I speak to Adam Sanders, Technical Director at RiskBase. Our conversation covers software solutions for fire risk assessments and the resident engagement strategy and fire door checks as required under the Building Safety Act and the Fire Safety England regulations. Yeah, I mean, we so we built it initially as a little bit of a tool. We were doing a few other things. We had a few other projects going on. And it was a bit of a reaction to very early fire risk assessments, which I think if we looked at now, our early outputs would be a bit horrifying to most people. You know, very tick box, quite, you know, overly structured and not very flexible. But it grew out of that. And it gained traction on its own. And then we started getting housing associations and councils talking to us saying, well, you know, this is great, but my problem is not just getting these these assessments done quickly and easily, but I need to manage all the stuff that came out of the back of it. So, you know, very, very rudimentary risk assessments with a whole load of actions and then started to chop it up. And then that didn't really interest me. The bit that interested me was, well, you've got a lot of data here and actually if we can put some structure to it, how can we chop it up better? How can we streamline that? How can we make the risk assessment process more consistent and more intelligent? And what other benefits outside the risk assessment can we provide? That's been a really slow process. I think we've been banging this drum, or I've certainly been boring everybody with it. You know, it's all about the data. You know, there's so much value in this and you're losing out. And it's only been the past two years, I guess, since since the Hackett review, where there's been this concept of the golden thread. When people are starting to, to value that data, I still don't think anybody's really doing it particularly well. Uh, and there are a lot of snake oil salesmen out there saying that they're developing a golden thread or helping people maintaining it. But what they're just doing is siloing data. And I think as a sector, we need to be thinking about how we can make this data more transferable between systems rather than siloing it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what? So in terms of the actual data coming out of the FRA itself, you mean, and how we can sort of integrate that into other systems? Yeah, I guess I kind of in my own mind, I've moved, moved away from FRAs. And I think it's, it's about everything. It's when you do a risk assessment, whether it's a fire risk assessment, whether it's a 9980 survey, whether it's a door survey, whether it's, you know, something really trivial, some kind of basic check or inspection under the regs, you're collecting lots of bits of data and you're collecting lots of bits of data against assets. And when you're doing a risk assessment, you're saying, okay, well, I think the risk is reduced, whether or not you explain this well enough in your risk assessment or not, but you're going to go, well, the building's safe because it's built in this way and it's got these five precautions or it's got this equipment installed or there's this compartmentation, this level of compartmentation or the escape routes are designed in this way. That's why I think this building is safe or not safe, or this is why I'm making this recommendation or not. All of that thought process, the more you can document it, the more useful it is for the next person that goes and does an assessment or a survey. Or now we have the concept of building safety cases becoming a little bit more mainstream. That information, that thought process, if we can get a little bit of structure to it, becomes really useful. And then the next time you have some kind of an assessment or a survey or a fire strategy, a retrospective fire strategy, all of that information gets corroborated rather than every single consultant going in and reinventing the wheel and coming up with their own idea of how a building works. We should be able to get all of these people working off the same page. 
Exactly. How do you get all of that data, though, into like a shareable platform that's accessible to all? I mean, this is it. I think over the past years, we have developed something which potentially did silo data. But now the standards are becoming a bit clearer. I think BIM is becoming more mainstream and people are starting to realize that it's not just about these spatial models. You can define a lot of a lot about a building without even floor plans, you know, just from a, an asset requirements or a design requirements perspective to, to how those fire precautions are being used and employed within a building is all nicely structured now. Well, I mean, it always has been in BIM, but I think it's becoming more mainstream. And, you know, even, even Kobe data um, or data structures are pretty mainstream now. So if we can just take that data collection, give it a structure, then it makes it much easier to move it into other systems or at least share it with other systems. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned uh, Kobe data structures, and I know we spoke before and you talked me through this because <laughs> you were like, do you know what, do you know about Kobe? And I went, no, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid not, Adam. I'm embarrassed to say I've got no ideas. But just in case anyone else is listening, can you just explain that very briefly again? It's a very old standard construction operation building information exchange so i think it's i think it dates back to the 80s or 90s and it was just a very simple set of fields which can get stored about anything within a building and it could be simple stuff color finish size quantity all that kind of thing but then what happened is bs864 came up with this idea of Fire IE, which was basically a copy of Kobe, but with some additional fields for fire safety elements. And the unfortunate thing about them is that it's it's being proposed as if it's a spreadsheet to to exchange information. But if we look at what information is being held and what those fields are, it becomes pretty straightforward. It becomes a foundation for any kind of asset within a building. And if you then extend it with other data standards like IFC, then you start to get some some really detailed information on these on these assets within a building. And an asset, you know, it it could be a door, it could be a fire extinguisher, it could be a detector, but it could also be a system. So it could be the fire alarm system as a whole or the smoke control system as a whole. And if you've got the data structures right, you might just have a little bit of information about this. You might just say, this, you know, there is an alarm system and I've got a commissioning certificate and it's installed to an L1 standard. Well, great. So we now know that there's an L1 alarm in this building and we have a commissioning certificate. We might not have the design requirements, but we know what's installed. Um, So we know how that alarm should behave within the building. And then the next person that goes to do anything to that alarm doesn't have to go, or you know, this person has a, does a risk assessment, goes, oh, I can see that data's there. You might then get a maintenance contractor that will come in and put in more detection or change the panel or whatever it is. And you can then say, well, now this alarm has changed from this to this. I've now got a whole load more information. And I've got the make and model of it, for instance, and I've got a warranty period and i know who installed it and you just gradually build up the detail of all of this data over time and and what's frustrating is that at the moment this stuff tends to just get lost within pdf documents or people overcomplicate it so they try and put a million different fields against something and most of them are never filled out and it just looks like a whole load of empty data whereas if you structure it nicely and you have a a, a nice interface very easy to manage even on a phone and build it over time. 
I think this is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in this subject and one of the reasons why I wanted to set the podcast. I mean, I was auditing buildings three years ago and you'd ask where the O&Ms were and they'd open a cupboard and there'd just be 60 files, lever art yeah. files, just full yeah. of documents and data. And I just sort of feel like the tech is running away. You know, it's incredible to see. I just almost worry that there's so many buildings that just aren't going to be able to catch up, if that makes sense. This is the problem. People think, oh, I just don't have the time to, to turn all those O&Ms into information. I don't have time to split that up. Yes. And I think the, the best approach is we'll just have a system that as you do, as that building does evolve, or as you do need some of that information, you do go and get it and pull it out of that filing cabinet. You put it into a system and you don't lose it. Certainly with the more complex high rises, since the Building Safety Act and the registration process they've got to go through with the regulator, that's starting to change for those buildings. And a lot of that or some of that information has to be put into a system so that you can build a safety case and produce a report within whatever it is, 30 days for the regulator. But I think it's about trying to grow into a system and whether or not you get that huge detail on every little bit in the building or not doesn't really matter. It's just as soon as you do something, don't leave it in a PDF or a spreadsheet that somebody can't manage. When you go and do that risk assessment or that survey or that door check or whatever it is, your health and safety audit, just make sure you're not double entering information because it's such a waste of time apart from anything else. But what if you've got two expert opinions and they conflict with each other and you've received both of those reports? That happens all the time. You haven't quite read them. Yeah. So, but you've just paid these two experts and they're probably right, or maybe one has made a totally genuine mistake or doesn't quite understand something about how the building is used or how it was designed. You want to get those two to not argue it out, but you need to decide which is right. And it probably means that second person, if he saw that first person's view and why they believed something was in place or wasn't in place, they'd come to a better understanding and they'd either go, actually, that's a fair point. I agree, This is that's a better strategy for this building, or no, actually, I don't know. That guy, was, he's fundamentally wrong. This is why I'm right. And then you end up with not just better information, but information that, that's been justified. Yeah, that makes sense. I, th- I think one of the things that I really liked about the uh, the risk-based system and about our conversation before, and, and you can, by the way, you can feel free to tell me if I'm wrong here. You seem to concentrate on FRAs, fire doors, and uh, resident engagement. I think we concentrate on the whole, the whole thing, really. That whole data collection piece. So all risk based really is is a data collection tool. It's just got. It's just very flexible in terms of how you collect that information and managing hierarchy. So I've got a building. That building's got a floor. That floor's got a space. That space has got rooms in it. And I've got a door. You know, in that door, I've got a lock. You could create. You could create all of that hierarchy if you wanted, or you don't need to. And so. It's very fluid in terms of when you do an audit or an inspection, there's lots of different ways to ask questions and collect information and and put it in the right places, which makes it much easier for a consultant or a surveyor to walk around a building and not spend hours trying to write up that information. And then when you start combining that with QR codes and RFID tags and floor plans and and it, you know, if you if you go down the spatial route, it's incredibly flexible. But we package that as, yes, door surveys, FRAWs, FRAs. But the reality is all we've done is just pre-built a few fields. 
And that's the starting point that many of our customers come to us with. And fine, some of them will just keep just doing door surveys or FRAs, but a significant minority of them realize the power of the system and start producing some quite interesting products that maybe combine several of those surveys together and or they are a company or an organization that's responsible for lots of properties and they realize that actually they're they're doubling up on a lot of this stuff. I think that's um, that's pretty fundamental, that efficiency piece, isn't it? I think the efficiency thing's really important to me because I, I hate admin. I hate typing things up. And so why anybody would want to do it twice or three times? But also, it's about being able to trust information that you read. It, it's really frustrating when somebody who's supposed to be authoritative, you know, an expert, any expert, doesn't matter whether they're, they're in the fire set or not, and you read something they write, you expect to trust it verbatim. And unless you have that efficiency, you can't trust it because you don't know how they've entered it. Have they just ticked a box? Or has it been, you know, was it from a template? Where did that information come from? And, you know, what, how did it originate? And unless you've got that audit trail and that process and that efficiency, I don't think you can trust the information that you read a lot of the time. Yes. Let's talk about fire doors for a second. This is a really interesting subject for me. I think with a lot of buildings, so under the the Fire Safety England regulations, say you take a a high-risk building, HRB, a residential block for ease of explanation. Um, You know, we now have to do the flat entrance doors annually, uh, a a check on the flat entrance doors annually, and a a quarterly check on uh, communal fire doors. But the issue is, I think with a lot of companies now, is that there's other people to satisfy other than just a regulator. So there'll be other investors, interested parties, other stakeholders. You know, some of these buildings could be owned by yeah, an SPV kind of investment vehicle uh, and they need some assurance and then the, the difficulty that you sort of have is that when people go and do a check and write it down on a piece of paper and type it into an Excel spreadsheet, how confident can you really be on that? And that's where a system like risk base really helps because it's sort of dated time stamp there's photographs there's videos you know it gives you that assurance yeah i mean even right down to you know potentially gps coordinates somebody's logged into a system yeah it really does give you the assurance because you know exactly who's entered that data whereas a an excel spreadsheet and we put some filters on it and then we managed to screw up the entire spreadsheet because we've sorted a column and then you don't realize until two hours later and you just ah just it's the most painful thing in the world i really don't envy the position that you know especially in the residential sectors either the freeholders or anybody and that any of those accountable people it's a mammoth task and they don't really know what their risk is and also potentially if they don't get this right they might not be able to sell that building yeah we're already in a position now where we're seeing property developers who have built high-rise blocks of flats that complied with building regulations in the day, complied with all the laws in the day, back in the, when they were constructed, now they're being told they've got to pay for remediation. Yes. And from an ethical perspective, it doesn't matter whether you agree with that or not, but it creates a huge degree of uncertainty within the market. The, the only thing you can do is follow as much best practice and make sure you've got as many, not necessarily as many systems and in place but a system in place which means you can track things and i think a lot of the time people think when they think of quality control they think about putting bureaucracy in the way of things and 
yes. double checking things and putting quality control and quality assurance in, which some of that's really important, but actually it should just be about efficiency. But what's the most effective way for me to make sure not just I'm complying, but to make sure that all of the experts that I've got are as effective and efficient as possible. And if you do that, you'll automatically get quality. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and I mean, my experience in this, I've worked for a, a number of companies and, and as a consultant and asked for advice. And then what will happen is, okay, look, we've got, you know, a couple of thousand fire doors to check. We've got an internal team. It says we can do the check internally, but it's it's actually... You know, it's really time consuming, it's difficult to do, and we're not sure how we're going to track and monitor it. And we're not sure how we're going to sort of provide that third party assurance. So what we're going to do is we're going to call in a, a fire door inspector. The issue that you have is the fire door inspector is inspecting it to current standard and they're inspecting it to sort of, you know, an, an as built standard. So i.e. it has to be perfect. And we don't live in a perfect world. You know, these fire doors, they move, they shift. And, you know, I'm seeing fire door reports where they're saying, well, the threshold gap is uh, 4.25 millimeters. So it's 0.25 millimeters out, <laughs> therefore it's a fail. And then people are going, well, the fire door inspector said it, so it must be true. And I, I, I just wonder if this was sort of unintentional from the Fire Safety England regulations, which it seems very balanced. It sort of says, look, you can do these checks internally with a staff member with very little training. We're not trying to make it overly owned or burdensome and that's unfortunately exactly what it's what it's become and this is why we need this tech solution I, i'm a big fan i agree with you completely i'm a big fan of the biosafety and regs i think well especially the guidance you can see that they've they've really thought about every word that's written in that guidance it's clear and as you say it says you don't need to be a specialist. You might need a bit of training, but you don't need to be a specialist. And actually what we're interested in is, does the door close on its own? Does it close well? And although there are some ambiguous bits about gaps, it's not about measuring those gaps. It, it's not, has this door, which was in, or should have been installed to BS 821, I should know this, 8214, 8216. 8214, um, well done, mate. Yeah, <laughs> getting there. Um, <laughs> which, which is an installation standard. And yes. it just, a door should be installed to a, a high degree of quality because that's what it's been tested to. But to then say, I've got a British standard, which is recommending two to four mil gaps, but then I've also got a third party certification scheme, which might say something else for this particular door because it's been tested in a furnace. How can I apply that? How can I retrospectively apply that to a door where I probably don't know the details of that third party certificate or the manufacturer's recommendations for maintenance because I don't have design all the installation requirements because I don't have a system. And if I have a notional door, well, what am I supposed to apply to it? So I don't blame the door surveying companies, but they're literally doing their job. Oh yeah, agreed. They, they, they have to work to that standard and they're insured to work to that standard. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't blame the sector them. Is, is, it, well, the sector's kind of forcing them to do it because the third party certification schemes go, if you want our gold stamp, you've got to do it this way. But the problem is that the people procuring these surveys don't really understand what the survey's trying to achieve. You know, it, that it is an audit. It's not a risk assessment. It's an audit. And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to do everything. It means you have to risk assess what you want to do. But you just put yourself in an even more difficult position because you've now got a whole load of information about your 10 or 20,000 doors that says this is all the stuff that's wrong with them. Well, do you then become negligent if you don't act on that information? 
Well, yeah, you do if you've not risk assessed it, if you've not justified which work you need to do. So then what a lot of people are doing, go, well, I will do what I think is the right thing and I will go and fix every single one of these doors. Well, are you fixing it? Are you actually making it that much safer? Probably not in a lot of cases. Yes. Whereas, you know, you could be spending 10, 20, 50,000 pounds easily on a building. You could probably go and put some other fire precautions in, which would make a much more dramatic difference. As long as those doors close and offer a, a reasonable degree of protection from fire and smoke, they're doing a job. It might not be the perfect job or the best job that it could do, but it's still a job. And, and I think this is where also fire risk assessors often fall down is that they're always trying to cover or often trying to cover their back. So they will say, well, those doors look a bit, a bit tired. Probably you should get a door survey. Yes. But they don't follow that up with, oh, actually the door survey's not come that, come back that bad. I would only do these actions. Or, you know, maybe you do some of these actions now and you look at the maintenance program over a five or a 10 year period. I wonder, I wonder if that's insurance. Well, in fact, I don't wonder. I pretty much know it's insurance-led, though, isn't it? You know, I used to be a fire risk assessor. My insurance was about £1,000 a year or something. All of a sudden, it's like ten grand, twelve grand, and you're like, hang on a minute. Meanwhile, there's companies out there that are still charging, you know, like 100 quid for a fire risk assessment. You're thinking that's, that it's, there's, something, there's something amiss here. So say we look at the external wall, uh, construction of the external walls, before the FRAW and past 9980 guidance came out i remember i was insured and went to renew and then they said uh yeah yeah that's fine we'll give you insurance for you to do fras but you can't do fras in schools hospitals and they listed off a load of things and then they said you can't do fras on any building with any sort of cladding or external building material i can't remember how they worded it so basically unless unless it was brick standard brick i couldn't do an fra on it and they did that, they bought that in for everybody. So what would then happen when you did an FRA is you'd have to write on there, uh, you know, the FRA hasn't considered the external wall construction and you should get someone to look at that, like an engineer, get an engineer's report. But then obviously past 79 came out and it specifically says that you have to, you know, consider the external wall construction. It was just, it's just a, I don't know. It's just a confusing time, really. You're being pulled in two different directions as a fire risk assessor. You've got the legislative requirement on one side, which you think is right, and then the insurer very much leading the industry and telling you what you can and can't do. I agree, but I also with a degree of frustration because you're going back to the doors. It's not you should have you know the you know the building doesn't appear to have had a recent door survey. You should instruct one. If that action or that risk was defined as the building's in good condition, but some of these doors look at, you know, there were concerns with some of the doors, they don't appear to be significant, would advise that a door survey is done and any urgent actions, you know, rectified, whatever it is. If there was a bit of context in those surveys, that assessor would still cover their back because they pointed something out. But I think the, the risk assessment element too often gets missed out. And a little bit of the say what you see. This is what I've seen. This is why I'm a little bit concerned about it. Or even I've seen this and I'm not concerned about it. And this is why I'm not concerned about it. And that the same thing should really apply to, I mean, it does apply to past 79 when you're expected to talk about the external wall system. If you can see that it's brick, 
you can say that it's brick. Now, if it's modern construction, you might say, I can see that the outside's brick, but I, I don't know whether it's timber framed. I don't know whether, whether it's concrete framed. But fine, if it's a Victorian building, you're going to know there's not an issue there. And I think that's the important thing. It kind of comes back to that point that I was saying about being able to trust an expert and, and trust what you read. Has somebody made a statement about something because they know it and they're confirming it as being true? Or are they making an assumption? And making an assumption is fine as long as you know it's an assumption. So if you make an assumption that there doesn't appear to be any issues with the external walls, but I'm not an expert, and you might want to consider this because, then that's great. That's really helpful for the client. But having a blanket response that goes, no, I'm not, I'm not insured for this, or I'm worried about my liability, so I'm just going to pick the worst case scenario. That doesn't help anybody, and that doesn't make the world a safer place. It just makes it a very expensive place. Yeah, I, I see it on FRAs now all the time. Get a fire door survey and get a compartmentation survey. Whereas previously, you know, your fire risk assessor would have passed comment on it, you know, said compartmentation seems fine or I don't know, probably a lot more information than that. But it, it would have been an, an explanation and a justification as to why you wouldn't need it. But now it just seems to be standard. This, this is why we need some better I always kind of goes on to the competence argument, but oh, that's a great the, argument. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, there's some really competent people out there, but it doesn't mean that they write great risk assessments that explain to a lay person. And you might argue that lay people shouldn't be reading fire risk assessments, but we need something that's a bit better than PAS 79 because PAS 79, everybody looks at it and translates it into a series of effectively tick box questions in the in the example risk assessments at the back rather than looking at the commentary and saying well why is this question being asked what what am i trying to achieve here what am i actually risk assessing and how am i justifying it and unfortunately i think that the current trade bodies without saying mentioning any of them are really not helping the situation um, they're continuing to push for the same methods, the same processes, and that's not necessarily about systems, but they're just not thinking about what the end user, the recipient of this fire risk assessment has to do with the information they receive. And I think if we put those people first, in the same way that when we talk about fire safety in residential buildings, the end, end, end user is the person that lives in that block of flats that is yes. potentially powerless to change anything. So it's then it's not about eliminating risk. It's about a proportionate level of risk reduction. And we have to bear in mind what that costs, how long it takes, and what the effect on, on all of those building users are. And that's what the risk assessors should be thinking. And if they justify what they're thinking and why they're thinking it, then I, it's difficult to criticize them. If they make a blanket response from a template, and there's nothing wrong with templates, because it helps you with consistency. But if if that response doesn't explain to somebody clearly and unambiguously why they think that or why they recommend it, then I don't think that recommendation is particularly helpful. Yeah, and, and the end user should go back and say, well, why do you think that? It's 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 really interesting, Adam. I, I really I'm interested in the competency argument uh, across a, a range of things. You know, even back to fire doors. You know, there's an army of people that have done a one hour course on an e learning thing online and got a door wedge and <laughs> running around condemning yeah. fire yeah. doors left, right, and center. You know, and um, but it's it's difficult. A lot of the guidance came out uh, recently. It's the one five six information, and you know, the government was saying uh, about 
uh, fire risk assessments and you know how you've got to check the competency of who's doing it etc but meanwhile if you're a company director you can do your fire risk assessment yourself and it, it takes you to a link and it says you know health and safety doesn't have to be onerous you can do your fire risk assessment yourself use our simple template and it takes you to a template that makes it makes past 79 look complicated it's that simple that's fine you know if you operate a tie rack or something i'm probably going back in time that i don't think tie rack even exists anymore but <laughs> but it's you know it's it's not fine in other circumstances you know i worked in a foundry once uh, as the health and safety manager and when i got there the fire risk assessment had been done by the union rep you know because he'd done a five-day health and safety course or something back in the day i mean this was a metalworks yeah. foundry yeah. uh it's, it's, a, it's a fire risk assessment that i wouldn't tackle now but of course as an employee and as an employer there's nothing stopping them doing it legally which is, I don't know, it's just really concerning, isn't it? I, I just, I think this is where there's competency. I, I know there's currently a lot going on in terms of defining competency and what's required to undertake these roles, uh, particularly fire risk assessment. But I'm not sure what the outcome is. But I, I do wonder, without rabbiting on too much, I mean, we had a conversation the other day, and I think we sort of, you came to an interesting conclusion that if we look at golden thread data, and we look at how we monitor and track all the data coming out of the buildings. And we, we, we have a, a clear picture on all the fire doors and a clear picture on the alarm system and a clear picture on the sprinklers and everything is maintained and everything is monitored and everything is tracked. W where does the fire risk assessment fit into that? I mean, is there a requirement for an assessment of risk if you can pretty much guarantee that the building remains in the as-built condition as per the fire strategy, et cetera? You do sort of wonder then where the fire risk assessment sits, you know, it's, it's in the future, in the future, I mean, not now, but. But the worst case scenario is that it just, there, there becomes a lot less of it to review, or best case scenario, becomes a lot less of it to review and it becomes much simpler because if you've got that compartmentation survey and you've done the regular door checks and you know the alarm's been serviced, you know, there's a regular audit or a check or an inspection that says, yeah, the doors aren't being wedged open, no, these charging e-bikes in the corridors, or, you know, we know all the, the flat entrance door closes are closing, the doors, then what is a fire risk assessment looking at? It's, it's really just looking for changes in the building rather than having to do what it does at the moment, which is go back every year or two years and reconfirm everything they looked at the year before. And I think one of our, from a, housing association or block management perspective, one of the biggest or the most frustrating things that they have to deal with is these endless actions that say, make sure there's a fixed wire test or that pack testing has been completed or the boiler has been serviced or you know, yes. by a competent gas safe contractor. And you go, come on, that's, this is not risk assessment. That's audit. You know, you should have a system in place which should, you know, the assessor should go out and it should go, here's all the systems I think are in this building. Here's all the documentation to say it's been done, but also, you know, we here are the dates that it's all been done. So at a glance, they can see it. And then the risk assessor should just be going, well, have any new systems been put in? Has anything changed? Is there any reason for me to believe that this information is wrong? And that's, that's where we should be with stuff. Maybe it's that actually you start to combine things and you have compartmentation surveys that get revalidated along with a basic risk assessment. But I think that kind of commodity product of buying a risk assessment is probably going to be relatively short-lived, especially in, in residential anyway. Uh, you know, if you're running a foundry, <laughs> yeah, you're looking at a completely different picture. Yes. But something that's, that's predictable, small retail, and certainly resi, 
not necessarily that it's life is limited, but it's certainly going to have to evolve quite considerably, I would have thought. Yeah, I agree with you. On um, one thing that has come to my mind, actually, Adam, that I, I think is interesting is the um, resident engagement strategy and the release of information to residents in HRBs. I, I read the government consultation the other day, and it was talking about what it, you know the prescribed information that you have to provide uh, a summary of, and you have to provide in full if requested. And then there are some elements that you can't redact for sort of commercial sensitivity or security but there will be some elements that you can redact and but you have to give a justification as to why and it sort of reminds me a bit like the old freedom of information act requests you know where all of a sudden the public sector had to hire thousands of people as freedom of information officers and i just sit there and think who's going to do all this this just seems like a massive admin burden because you know in in a lot of these hrbs there are a lot of people that are very concerned and rightly so and as soon as this comes out they're going to be requesting documents left right and center and probably their mortgage companies will be wanting them to request these documents as well Mm. you know it's not like vexatious they're going to they kind of they're going to want to know it's the building surveyors especially when when there's a transaction that are asking a lot of the questions i think yes um i think from, from my perspective i read section 156 of the building safety act a few years ago and you know there were all these clauses for this amendment of the fire safety order not i mean it is resident engagement but that provision of information to residents about fire safety and that doesn't just apply to the hrbs it applies to any building or any any residential building two more units and it's not particularly prescriptive and it's just saying Basically, you've got to provide information about the responsible person and what the key risks and, and fire precautions are within the or risks to life and the fire precautions are within a building. And I think that should be something that fire risk assessors should be aware of or the sector generally. When we're building up this database of information, how are we going to present that information that we have to that resident? Because if we can automate this and we can start to share things and make people more aware, we talk about a block of flats and we say the flats have got protected entrance corridors this is why we have lobbies this is what you know there you know extended travel distances are acceptable because there's smoke control or, or ventilation or there's cross corridor fire doors or whatever it is when we produce we call them resident engagement portals they're it, it's not quite resident engagement but it's providing information from fire risk assessment strategies and other things that we know about a building, the fire precautions within a building. And we try and present this all as being really positive. So it's what's, you know, we don't call it fire precautions. We call it what's keeping me safe. And it'll say lobbied, you know, lift lobbies with a 60 minute separation to the stairwell, which allows for escape for residences provided or assisted by these measures. And as a result, there is no need for sprinklers or there are sprinklers. And where are the sprinklers and what do they do? When you start to detail everything that's in a building and people go, oh, I didn't really think about that. And actually, right, okay, I have got protected entrance hallway in my flat. Never thought about it. Never knew what it did. Never understood why it was important. Yes. And now I know why that door closer on my front door is so important. So if we can start building up that picture and providing that information to people, however subtle it is, however many people don't look at it, every little bit helps. And if an extra 10% of people understand a bit more, that's still going to save lives. And it's still going to make people much safer than going and spending 20 grand fixing all the 
communal doors if we can get residents to understand this stuff i'm not sure i explained that particularly well but i think no you kind of goes back to that yeah no it makes perfect sense adam so you know i like i like the fact that you put a positive spin on it so it, it, it is that resident engagement piece is very much business to customer isn't it so it's 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 quite a marketing piece really and it's an opportunity to sort of convince you know the resident that they're safe and portray this uh, perception of safety yeah. and i think we yeah. in the industry we've now got a long way to go post grenfell to make people feel safe within the buildings i, I mean I, I would go the other way as well and say what we want to be careful of is not creating a perception of a building that's safe when mm -hmm. it's not safe but getting that information to those people and helping them understand it is essential but it's also thinking about what do those people want to hear what do they want to know and if we can demonstrate safety rather than just provide that perception of it because we say look this is what your building has and this is what we're doing as well by the way it's got an annual fire risk assessment it's got these door surveys with our systems they can walk up to a door they're qr coded in the door jam they can scan that it will take them to a web page which will show them that door and say it was last checked on thursday by jeff or three months ago oh we're late on it or six months ago we're late on it and we know that it's got this damage to it. And by the way, we're doing something about it. We might not do anything about it for three months because we've perceived it as low risk, or we don't think there's any damage to it. You report it. So then, then we are getting to true resident engagement. And if we can demonstrate all these things are being done to keep you, the resident safe, they will feel safe and they will be safer. And hopefully they don't then go off on a trouble causing mission to their local housing association demanding every single document under the sun yes which they might be entitled to they might they're probably well they are entitled to more information than we provide on our standard engagement portals but hopefully that's enough for them to go oh actually stuff is being done so from a, a social housing point of view where you tend to get tenants that feel a little bit ignored and done over they don't have that same connection with properties that that leaseholders do they've got some comfort. But then if you're a, a private client, you're a leaseholder, you can actually go, well, you know, all this money that's being spent on fire safety, actually, at least I can kind of see what's being done now. And the provision of these portals costs almost nothing if you've got the information in the right place. I, I hadn't thought about the service charge aspects as well. So where you've got the engagement portal, if someone's had to pay that money out in service charge, they can at least they can see where that money's gone really quite clearly yeah rather than just these line items that says fire door survey fire door survey and they go well i've had five two fire door surveys one fire door surveys found this stuff another one's found this stuff well actually look this is the work this is what's been identified and this is why it was identified yeah absolutely and I've, I've i've been quite lucky uh you've obviously provided me with access to risk base and i've actually gone through it and i really like the resident engagement portal i really like it i like the fact that you can you sort of open it up it provides you with the summary but you can also drill down into the detail if you want to you know so if you really are after the detail you can sort of go through and open relevant documents etc and it's just really clear neat tidy and it, it would give you that confidence yeah it's quite interesting. I, I go on about this banging the drum about, you know, data is so important. But when I go and show, when we go and show this to some fairly large councils and housing associations, they go, oh, I want this. How quickly can we have it? And and what does it cost? And I said, well, it's not, we're not really going to charge you anything for it. It's there. Your data is there. 
we can give you this off the shelf one if you want, but you've got to get your data right. And, and that's the thing they, when it suddenly clicks to them and you say, look, we've been telling you for a year, two years, five years, stop collecting your data in this way. And this is, these are admittedly, some of these are risk-based customers where we're saying, stop asking questions and putting or, or risk assessment questions and putting really important information about your buildings in verbose text because it's getting lost. You're paying somebody to write it. I, we can't query it for you. It's not as simple as yes or no. That information needs to go in, in its own place. And then your risk assessments are going to become easier and quicker and cheaper. And we can do stuff like the resident engagement portals. They're now seeing the resident engagement portals. They're seeing this the section 156 requirement and thinking, well, we're going to have some trouble causes that are going to come along and you know demand all of this documentation. And if I can have this, it's going to make my customer services team much happier, but also my fire team and my safety teams are going to have far fewer inquiries dealing, and it's already busy for them, providing fire risk assessment for when um, right, the fire flats have been being bought and sold. What's it going to be like when they can easily, we have to provide ways for them to easily request this information. It's quite interesting how what's actually a really small bit of legislation probably will have a greater impact on golden thread potentially, than the Building Safety Act, which is saying you've got to maintain the golden thread. The golden thread becomes a byproduct of, of this Section 156 requirement. It's an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah, I, it's, I think the penny is beginning to drop with a few of these, a few, quite a few people. And it, it would just be good to see the, the industry behind it a little bit more and understanding what they've really got to deliver rather than this endless piecemeal approach of, okay, well, you need your door survey, or you need your door check, you need your compartmentation survey, your fire risk assessment, your monthly checks with the, the lift inspections, and then you've got provision to the fire service, and, oh, you're going to have to pay me, and I'm going to go and create a, some SIV documentation for you, and you need a golden thread, so we'll put another management system in, and we'll copy all the stuff out of all those documents, we'll stick it in that, and then, oh, you've got your BSR registration, and I need to prepare a safety case, and when they ask for a safety case report, then that'll be another charge. Have you done your FRAEW? Uh, and as that tied back to your, you know, we're going to now need a retrospective fire strategy, and so there's 20 or 30 of these documents floating around, and there's, they are suddenly realizing that a lot of this stuff is duplicated. And if we can just get it right once, we can reuse it. And if the sector's got to get behind it and start structuring everything that they do, whether it's a fire strategy or an FRA or any of these surveys, that data is just so incredibly important. Otherwise, you get your FRAW done and all of that information about the wall build up, the building construction gets lost because the fire risk assessor can't see it unless they ask for it. And is a fire risk assessor going to go and read a 100-page FRAW? No. Not for 150 quid, they're not. No. And this is really, you know, this takes me on to something else, actually, Adam, that I've been really thinking about. And and you mentioned about competence before, but I was thinking about my route into this industry, you know, and I look at all of the, you know, the NEBOSH qualifications that I've done and mm. a level five NVQ and a load of sort of courses in terms of fire risk assessors course, advanced fire risk assessors course. No one's talked about data. I've never had a single input in, in all of the qualifications I've done in how to manage this data or information or tech or software or, or anything like that. No. And I think the thing is, I think there is such a massive disconnect 
But so if we if we just look at the fire risk assessment, fine, the basic provision of a fire, you go and read your average tender, it'll say, I want a fire risk assessment as a PDF and I want some kind of a CSV or a data, data file of the actions that go with it. And if you go and talk to the sector, they'll go, well, that's, you know, that's a golden thread. And you go, well, it's not because you've got all the information in your fire risk assessment. Don't tell me you're distilling a fire risk assessment down to five, 10, 15 actions, which you put an arbitrary risk score against or a priority score that says, oh, get done in by November. And I think the sector does itself a massive disservice by saying that that is what a fire risk assessment is, because I think most fire risk assessors want to go and do a good job. Yes. And ticking those boxes, I think is really unhelpful. We can, we can do the box ticking bit of fire risk assessment super quickly, but stop getting caught up on whether there's a, a fixed wiring test in a building. Does the consumer look, unit look like it's in good condition? Yes or no? Yes, it does. Okay, cool. That information about that fixed wire test should be standard information. That's your best practice recommendation. Go and look at a building, risk assess it, justify it, and then let's look at some some good outputs of why you've made those decisions. I don't I can't see the sector ever getting its head around real golden thread. The fire sector will never quite get that right, I don't think. It's got to be the end users, the block managers, the property companies, the developers, the housing associations that need to start to stipulate those requirements rather than using these slightly backward software companies that try and silo data all the time. We need to be making sure that software companies start exchanging information with each other so that you know you can go and get your risk assessment done with one company and the block management company have got another bit of software which they're using, and they're getting risk assessments from other software providers as well, from different consultants. And all of that needs to come into one place. And that really only happens if we get some collaboration and some some more data standards. And that's about the software sector or the software or the prop tech sector coming together and doing some things. And I think it's slowly starting to happen, but it's, it's coming from the BIM side and the construction side rather than from the the ongoing use and management side. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. And it's really interesting. And I, and I, again, I sort of see it from my side is that no one, there's, there's a lot of software providers and there's a lot of safety people and the two don't always necessarily communicate that well together. And, you know, I think that's where my personal interest comes into this. I think there's a real opportunity in this sector for sort of innovation, for this innovation and for change and for tech to really help. And, I notice it on uh, LinkedIn quite a lot. People will, they'll say, "What you know? What do you think about AI?" And then someone will immediately re- reply, "Well, you should never use AI to write a risk assessment." So like, well, you've completely missed the point, you know. You've <laughs> and I, and in the end, I sort of posted on there and said, "I said something about you know how have you, how have you used AI to to make yourself a, a better safety professional and to help improve safety in your workplace?" Not a single comment. And I mean, you could say it's because I have no friends, but no, I, d- I do normally get a lot of engagement on my posts, but nothing, no one replied. Yes. <laughs> I think it's, it's one of those things. People think of AI and they think chat GPT, and that's all they're really thinking. Whereas if as a sector, we think, well, actually, what we really need to do is to start to build these language models, these basically that statistical model and we give it the data to go and analyze well 
that if we give, get some really good risk assessments that have got that justification that we've been talking about today, and we say, look, here's a building, and or here are here are a whole load of buildings, and here's all of the compliance information and the safety information for these buildings, and we start to put that into a language model, then you can start to use AI to not necessarily write the risk assessments, but to go, oh, I've seen this on a door, or I've got I've got a building and I know it's got these things. What are the other things I should consider? And I don't mean that as in the risk assessor goes around and asks those questions, but it, I mean the surveyor or the assessor goes around a building and starts to input information that they see and potentially document it on a floor plan, start to build that building information model along with risks that they see. And you can then use AI to ask other questions of the surveyor, go, have you checked this? Do we know this information about the wall, the, the wall construction? It's not replacing it, but it can certainly enhance what that surveyor does, and it can enhance the data that we build afterwards. And when AI asks that stupid question and the surveyor goes, well, that's not relevant, or no, this is fine, what are you talking about? That just improves the language model. But to be able to do that, we need the data in a structure. Yes, you could chuck it PDFs, but if you give it date structured data, that's when you get some really cool stuff. That's really interesting, mate. That's the first time I've sort of heard anything like that. I've just, I, you can't see me, but I took a sort of sit back in the seat and went, yeah, that's, that's, that's a game changer. So imagine I'm writing a risk assessment for something and I produce a risk assessment and just happen to run it through uh, AI and AI goes, Pete, you've, you've missed this out, mate. And actually undertaking this task, this causes X amount of injuries across your sector. And this is based on data from the last five years. You need to consider this as a control measure. It'd have to be very arrogant of me to go, no, I know better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, and in some cases you might know better. That just goes to improve the model for the next guy or girl. So, but I also think that we can start to build that. And this is stuff that we're looking at at the moment is we can start to build that into the survey software so that when you go and do your risk assessment, it isn't that PAS 79, here's, here's 102 questions or whatever it is. It's you go around a building, and this is a problem with, with a structured template like a risk assessment. You don't walk around the building and go, all right, my first question is, you know, does the electrical system appear in good condition? I'll walk around the building. Oh, yeah, it's fine. And now I'll go into the second question. Have all items been pat tested or is there a suitable policy for X? I'll go around and check again. You don't. You walk around the building, add in everything that you see. You probably, in a traditional risk assessment, will go and find a question to link that risk to or that control measure to. And then you look at your, your, your pro forma template at the end and go, all right, here's all the stuff that I haven't answered. And you might pop around and go and check a couple of other bits. If instead of attaching that information or those risks to questions within a risk assessment, you just documented them free form as risks. I've gone and seen this electrical systems a mess or the electrical system looks tidy, the consumer unit looks good and it's got a recent test label on it and I've done these things or I've seen these things, this door's good. Then it can go, okay, well, you haven't told me, you know, what's, what is the protection to the flats? Uh, is there a um, protected fire shaft? Yes. Do you know, have you spotted this about compartmentation? And it can then guide you to answer some other information and come up with recommendations or 
make points to go, because the building has X, Y, and Z, this is what the strategy is for the building, or this is why there is a reliance on smoke control. And then that's building up. That's a really smart risk assessment. And it should, and we can make it tick all the boxes of PAS 79, but not just the questionnaire boxes, all the commentary which underpins why those questions are asked. Do you reckon we could ever get to a point where you sort of, you know, as a fire risk assessor, you're provided with a lot of the golden thread information and you just, I don't know, I'm, I'm being really crude here, but you just plug that into the system and then the system turns around and says, yeah, you're going to do your FRA, you really need to check X, Y, and Z because these have been highlighted as issues in the past or, you you know, you need to concentrate on these areas. Is that even feasible? I mean, I think that's feasible without AI. And I think, you know, we're starting to do some of that stuff already. I think when you start to plug in AI on top of it, and it's, you know, there aren't that many people that I don't, I don't understand much at all about AI. And probably there'll be some experts listening to this saying I've used the terminology wrong, but as we understand it better, then I think that's when this stuff becomes really interesting. And it's not about, you know, we've seen all these scare stories about axes on people that use AI to replace people. And I don't think it is about that. I think AI is about making people better, or certainly in this application, it's saying, you're an expert at this. I don't want you wasting your time stating the obvious. I want to use your skill set and your knowledge and your experience. And if that person always uses that knowledge and their experience, then they're just going to get better and better. And they keep putting that knowledge and experience into, into AI, and therefore they can get you know more niche, more technical, have a better breadth of information rather than spending their time walking around just doing the same thing over and over. So what's next for RiskBase? What's the next the next sort of plan? Or can you not talk about that? No, I mean, I think we're, we're pretty open. I think our, our, my goal from, from a company strategy is to try and help develop some of these standards and work with some other software companies and other interested parties in the sector to improve that. And let's get a few people doing similar things to, to what RiskBase are doing. And in some ways, if we develop the competition, then hopefully we actually build a standard um, and we build a best practice there. But short term, it's you know our solutions for wall surveys. The FRAW stuff is is going crazy. Yes. We've got so many people that uh, have realised that you know if you've got three or four people contributing on a report, you can't forward a word document around anyone, and that's. That's been really exciting for us because there's there's a lot of data and you've got to structure it in the right way. Otherwise, it's just it it doesn't work. Yes. So we've got some cool stuff happening with that. Yes, all the legislation, the golden thread, that's useful because it's again, it's building those standards. But I think kind of second quarter next year, it's it's all going to be about AI. Really? Yeah. I'm, it's got to be. I'm really excited. I want to keep in touch and uh, and find out how this is going. What about uh, safety cases? You're not looking at those at all in terms of like safety <laughs> case I, report on, construction. If I'm honest, I don't know enough about it. As far as I'm concerned, the safety case, the safety case itself is that is that information repository. Yes, yes. How how we produce that report or how that report gets produced, if the <laughs> if the regulator can't tell us what it looks like at the moment, it, it's it's really difficult for us to get involved. I think once there are a couple of standards there, then we'll be all over it. 
whereas at the moment it's it's very specialized and whilst everybody's supposed to have their building safety cases ready for april i can't see it happening you know all, they, all they've really told us is what information needs to be in there the, the sample reports that i've seen as part of the consultation they were doing what well, must have been a year ago now were incredibly long-winded and the regulator was really quite critical of it so well, they wanted them to quite be shorter to more of a summary well they wanted it but yes but they also didn't they also wanted more information in other areas and a conversation i had with somebody at the home office was saying actually we're really worried that they're just going to throw too much information at us obviously my take on that is well that's why everybody needs to have a system so you can go get the information you want but it, at the moment, it all feels like a bit of a moving target. I say the, pri the private and the third sectors have done incredibly well to keep up with the regulation. I think most of them have just about got to grips with fire safety England. I think the building, the safety case and the registration requirements, they got over in October and now they're kind of now looking towards the April requirements and and looking at each other saying well what are we supposed to be doing here yeah yeah um, i agree i agree it's really complicated and i mean uh, there was the original guidance that came out on construction of a safety case which is on the hse website now it redirects you to um to the gov website and i think the original stuff was like seven pages long uh you sort of flicked through on the hse website told you everything that you needed to put in there and then now it's taking you to a one-page gov summary almost yeah. it's almost like they've gone this is going to be too much information we need to cut this down a bit but it just creates confusion i think but i think where there is confusion though there is potential for innovation because they've not told you how to do it so there is there is that option that you could sort of get a bit creative with it you know the problem is the the regulator is charged with it's 140 pounds an hour to look through your documents yeah yeah so yeah you don't give them enough they'll go oh something's wrong here and they'll start asking for things and they'll spend a whole load of time on your case you give them too much they'll spend too long reviewing it and then ask you even more questions so that middle ground needs to be right and and i would have thought that the regulator is going to come unstuck a couple of times and learn their lesson and i don't mean that in a in a derogatory way but you know april's really not that far off no not at all they've got a limited number of staff so I would have thought that the first few safety cases, which are going to be for the highest risk buildings, they're going to have to take a fairly conciliatory approach, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a good word. Uh, yeah, so you've got the tranche one. But but again, even that guidance was rescinded. That guidance was removed from the website. Right. If, I, if I'm right in, in saying this, I might be wrong now. but Because it changes so quickly. Every time you go on there, something's <laughs> been revoked or removed. But it was originally that you had, I want to say you had to submit within 30 days of registration, the safety case, and all of a sudden it got pushed back to April 2024. I'm not sure where that deadline came from. The what they actually required has changed in terms of the guidance, and then they had this uh, this this tranche system where they would request them based on the height of the building and the number of residential units. So obviously, the taller the building, and I I, I can't remember how many. I want to say it's over 140 residential units was in tranche one. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but but like you, I I just I just can't see how they're going to manage it. It it just seems like again so much data. And I'm not sure how they're going to want to gain access to any of this information. Because, of course, the safety case report is just, I mean, it's not a summary, is it? But it doesn't actually contain the data. So they may actually have to request this afterwards. Uh, 
you know, unless I'm wrong. I think that they are literally expecting, I believe, a PDF and then a whole load of supporting documents. And they're worried that they're going to get too many supporting documents because if they get given a document, they're going to have to review it. If they've got tranche one, but tranche one might take them a year to get through. It might take them two years to get through. So nobody knows when they're going to have to produce the safety case report. I think it's, I say, 28 or 30 days. So regulator comes along, goes, picked on you. You've got a month to give us this, this information, or you've got a month to give us the report. Well, that would be really annoying if you'd produced your report in January to get yourself ready for it. And they don't ask for it for another 18 months because you're pretty much going to have to start again. Yes. I, lots of the information the building won't have changed, admittedly, but you're going to have to get all that documentation ready again, which, again, comes back to the need of the need to have a system. And I would be turning around to the regulator and going, look, all, you, all the documentation you need, it's in that system. Here's your login. Go for it. And here's our, here's our PDF. And, and I think it's really important that people start to stand up to the poor, make sure they do stand up to the regulator if they're pushing too hard. Yeah. If they're asking for too much information, let's go, let's go back to what does the legislation say this has to be and get that best practice figured out. I, there's, there've been some very mixed messages from the regulator. Some going, you've got to do this because people, you know, we are going to prosecute. We have got the power and other messages going, no, we want to work with you. I don't think they've got that balance right yet. Yeah, I agree. You know, Adam, honestly, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, um, mate. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being my very first guest. Genuinely, I really appreciate okay. it. What I'll do is I'll put a link in the notes to RiskBase. But if anyone does want to reach out to you, what's the what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, through the website riskbase.uk, or if you've got something really interesting to ask me, adam.sanders at riskbase.uk. Brilliant. Adam, thank you so much, mate. Honestly, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Ben. I hope it was interesting. Bye. Bye. I really enjoyed that interview. And for a first episode, I think that was really insightful for me as to what I'm going to learn throughout this process. And it was quite interesting that speaking to Adam, he's not had the same entry route into fire safety that I have, you know, from the point of view as a fire risk assessor, but he's come into it from a software development point of view, which has allowed him to bring his experience and background, look in at our industry, identify the inefficiencies, and then use his skills, experience, and expertise in order to develop a better solution. And I think the bit that's interesting for me is how in order to make buildings safer, in order to make people safer within those buildings, um, we really need to look outside of our own industry and bring a, a collaborative approach. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. First interview done. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give me a, uh, a like, a thumbs up, a subscribe, depending on whichever platform you're listening to. And uh, let me know what you thought of it on LinkedIn. And see you in a couple of weeks' time for our next interview. Thank you.